everybody, welcome back to Space Junk Podcast. I'm Tony Darnell from Deep Astronomy, and today we're going to be talking with John Michael Godier, a futurist, science fiction author, and maker of amazing astronomy videos on YouTube. He has written several sci-fi books that are available on Amazon, notably Supermind, a story that deals with biological augmentation and supercomputer simulations of the universe. John is an expert in astronomy education for the masses, and he sat down with us to give us a little insight in what it's like to fight the battle of a science communicator in today's world. So let's get started. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Space Junk, a weekly podcast dedicated to the amazing hobby of amateur astronomy. Each week, we'll bring you interesting and fun discussions with an eye towards providing you with the latest information and advice on the tools, gadgets, software, and techniques for maximizing your enjoyment of the night sky. Your hosts are Tony Darnell from DeepAstronomy.Space and Dustin Gibson from OPT Telescopes, a world leader in telescopes and accessories. We are now recording. So we know, okay. you know what's funny, Tony, is I just got to meet John. So what's up, John? How you doing, man? <laughs> what's up, Dustin? Man, I just got to meet John at uh, the All Stars party. We were in Palm Springs, and um, you know I, I'd seen your stuff. I think everybody's seen your stuff, John, on YouTube. I mean, your channel. Some of your videos have over two million views. When you think about those numbers, I mean, we're talking about that's an entire major city in the United States. You know, like the population of a huge city in the United States watching these things. It is. And it's it's uh, actually what's even weirder for me is when I think about every time I turn this microphone on on YouTube, a football stadium at least watches it. And oh, at it's minimum. Like, yeah. At yeah. Minimum. At minimum. And then sometimes they go really viral. Um, as a matter of fact, I released one last night that is going viral yeah. in that yeah. way. And yeah. um it, it's it's yeah it's 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 something it's best not to think about it if you don't have to because then you get nervous <laughs> right right you know i think it's the voice though man because you got this like super deep voice you know and uh you know when when you walked up and introduced yourself i was like what's up man shook your hand it's like hey i'm dustin and you were like i'm john michael godier i was like shit <laughs> shit i want to like i want to redo mine now you know <laughs> yes but always remember the the voice is not of my doing i have to thank my genetics for that thanks dad yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> all right well what's the video that you just made that's going viral now oh we got something cool going on in astronomy um there's a star hd139139 that was uh observed during the kepler 2 mission and it is dipping you know dipping as far as you know exoplanet transits, but it's doing it in a way that it's not periodic, meaning that they saw 28 dips that look like planets, but they show no periodicity. So what causes that? Are they not in orbit? What is this? You know, so it's this big mystery that came out due to a paper that um, was released actually, Dustin, while we were sitting there in, in uh, Palm Springs. Right. And it's totally unexplained. So it's a, it's a new mystery, probably something astrophysical, of course, but Nobody knows really what it is at this point. This one's easy. Now, this man. sounds it's, like it's a lot like right? that Tabby Star uh, thing that we heard about a while it, back. It's where... a it's a repeat of Tabby Star, only this time it's well. Tabby Star it always looked like dust to me. <laughs> mm -hmm. I, I did a lot of videos on it, you know, the maybes and all this, but it looked to me like it was just some dust, cold dust, in some weird juxtaposition, and that appears to be what it is. In this case, this appears to be planets. I mean, solid planets, and um, 
I mean, what causes that? You know, is it? And and the the other weird thing about it is the planets are, with the exception of one dip, all of them are the same size. So the size of the exoplanet, which I believe is about one point five times Earth that they worked out, the size of these exoplanets passing by are all the same. <laughs> so what causes that? Um, now the 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 best possible answer I think for this one is that it's some new kind of very short-lived star spot, you know, uh, like a sunspot, but only, a, you know, on a star other than the sun, and that they're just very short-lived and it's a type we've never seen before. That's what I'm betting on myself. Well, I'm glad you brought that up because people, you know, with, when you, for those of you who don't know, the transit method of finding an exoplanet is just measuring a tiny dip in brightness as the planet, as a planet passes between us and the star. And what a lot, what we, what also can do that is stellar activity or, uh, you know, they call it, uh, in, when the sun does it, it's helioseismology. But if, if, if uh, other stars do it, it's just stellar uh, where you can have seismic, seismic activity. You could also have uh, stellar activity of the form of active regions and all kinds of other things that can make areas of a star brighter and darker in certain wavelengths. And we don't talk about that enough, I don't think, because that can also be a signal that is embedded in a transit that may affect whether we what the size of the planet, which is one of the pieces of information you get when you look at a transit, uh, how big the planet is. You can get that information as well as its periodicity, how often that dip occurs. So I think this is actually something that isn't looked at enough. I think these signals of stellar when we are at a point where we are now, where we're, we're sensitive enough to look at these star variation brightnesses to the level of one in a billion, okay? I think we need to take these kinds of stellar features into account. And I don't, I'm not sure we do in a way that can totally get rid of the signal from a stellar, uh, from a uh, exiting, a transiting exoplanet. Yeah, and I don't think we have a good handle on on the idea of star spots anyway, because we know what the sun does and we can see, you know, star spots as we know them in the Kepler data, but maybe there's other types. The, the weird thing here, though, is that the star in question is uh, a type G sun-like star. So why would it exhibit different sunspots than our sun does? You know, that's the big question there, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. But um, but yeah, it's just interesting when, you know, Kepler allowed us to look at the universe in near real time tiny little part of it, you know, just a little tiny field of view, but we could see it in real time, which uh, when you see it, it's like watching a video as opposed to looking at a photograph. So we can see essentially, or could see it's a defunct spacecraft now it ran out of fuel, but it, we could see the universe in real time. And that allowed us to see some, some really strange stuff that you wouldn't see if you just took a snapshot. Um, but thankfully, Kepler's capability is going to be replaced, but with the LSST the Large Synoptic Survey Telescope, which comes online fairly soon, next few years. And that yeah, will the take... Fir first, first light will be next year, I think. They're trying, they're shooting for it. Yeah, they're shooting for it. And that that will give us an all-sky survey within it, what it can see every, what is it, day and a half, something like that? It's like two, two to three days. Yeah. yeah. That's, that's the entire sky, folks. <laughs> every two to three days. Yep, every two to three days. And that's that, that opens up some neat possibilities because... You can see movement like that. So you'll be able to detect things like um, uh, interstellar asteroids, like Oumuamua. We'll be able to see those things as they come through. We'll be able to see near-Earth asteroids. We'll be able to see all kinds of things. And then we'll also be able to see data on um, um, things like this this star in question, HD 139139. Um, 
That's oh, a horrible thinks, name, man. That is a that is a terrible they have, name. They have, <laughs> no, oh, it's got an even worse name under the Epic catalog. It's about ten numbers. Um, so I took the shortest one I could find right. <laughs> yeah. for this star. I guess it'll get named, you know, after the researcher or whatever um, at some point. But but yeah, it's it's right now. It's so early. It's so early in the game on this story that most of the media hasn't even reported on it yet. Yeah, that's yeah, what you got to love about scientists, right? They're just like, oh, I just like the way that rolls off the tongue. You know? <laughs> he went through that, went through that. Yeah. <laughs> well, Tabby Star, for the longest time, I had before they named it Tabby Star, I had to say KIC 8462852. Right, right. 8462852, which always <laughs> reminded me of a B-52s song. Uh, it does. 6060842. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, well, so you guys uh, just got out of a really cool event that I want to learn more about. Tell us a little bit about this. Um, what did, what was it called again? The Star Tours or the All Stars Star Arts, Party? All-Star. Yep. Yeah, that's what it was. Well, so what was that like? What did you guys do? Oh, it was a blast. Um, many of the things that occurred there, though, have to stay there. Oh, okay. Oh, yeah. One of the, it's it's like that, is it? What happens okay. at Palm Springs stays, stays at Palm in Springs. Palm Springs. Oh, okay. All right, then. Well, is there anything there was, you can divulge? There was a scorpion involved. Um, we were out at Dustin's uh, observatories out in, uh, what is that, Landers, California? Yeah, Landers. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And we were shooting lights, infrared lights down, looking at scorpions before we started observing. And that led to an unbelievable view of the night sky. I haven't seen the Milky Way that bright since I was a kid out in Colorado. So it it, it, it was amazing. Beautiful Isn't dark it, sky mean, location. It, it's crazy to watch the Milky Way come up and it's so bright. It just looks like a cloud going overhead. You know? It does. And it, and it looks 3D. If you imagine all the stars that you see right. are part of that and the Milky Way is the background, it puts it into perspective that we are orbiting a galactic core. And the more you stare at it, the more you realize that you you can't see black space between the stars it's just stars so densely packed together that it, it literally does look like a cloud going overhead well and it gets even worse um you guys had the 20 inch telescope out there the 20 inch dobsonian and it, if you look at the milky way through that thing you see nothing but background stars right at just amazing density it's it's you, unreal you've got to love those dark skies i mean other than scorpions that was a big scorpion too man that thing is it was rather large, yeah. Um, but they, they're not really the problem out there, though. It's the snakes, I, I guess, right? You know, and that's what I realized when I got, because they were like, come check out this scorpion. So I followed them out into the middle of this, you know, patch of desert where there's no light, nothing, just bushes everywhere. We look at the scorpion, which is really cool, pretty scary. But then he walks off and I'm stuck out there without a light. And I'm like, shit, I got <laughs> I gotta walk past all these bushes <laughs> with rattlesnakes out here everywhere. Like, I... This is this is really disappointing, man. I'm just going to sprint, you know. And then, <laughs> then I turned on my white light on my phone, and everybody got upset with me. But um, it just seemed better than getting, you know, taken out at the star party. I, yeah, don't get taken out at the star party. I um I actually had like a small red light, but it wasn't quite enough. So half the time I was walking around with my flicking a cigarette lighter, trying to see where exactly I was going. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, those it was an awesome event though. The All Stars Party. It, I think it really is, and I didn't realize this until we did it. But it's the best way to meet people because you know it's how I met you. I you know I've spent a lot of time talking to Fraser and Pamela, but never met them in person. But because we all had to do presentations and speak, 
that's really the first we got to hear of each other was like a 45 minute presentation. So you learn all of this stuff about the people before you ever really, you know, spend time together. And, and I think that, you know, you just you get a completely different perspective of the person. Yeah, it was really cool. The panels were particularly cool. Um, and if anybody wants to see those panels, I think they're on Twitch mostly, um, but they, they were filmed. Um, and yeah, they yeah. were they were fantastic. And what, what these events are, because people may want to go do one of these things, is so Astro Tours puts on events that you can buy tickets to. You usually have to do it pretty quick because they sell out very fast. But um, what it is, is you get to travel with uh, space industry influencers like JMG here. And um, you get to learn about the night sky, go out to dark sky locations. They travel to exotic places. Like I know they're going to Iceland and Costa Rica and all these different places. This one was in Palm Springs, California. And then uh, you just get to learn about you know, space and ask questions to people who spend their lives doing this type of thing. So it really was an awesome idea. And I know the people that were there all told me they, they loved it. Yeah, same here. Um, I had a few people that came up to me that signed up through my promotion of it. And yeah, they seem to really enjoy themselves. Um, the other thing too, is that with, with your remote telescopes, even though we had two cloudy nights, we were still looking at the stars. So yeah, yeah. we had this ability to look at the stars anyway. Yeah, it's cloudy in California. Let's look at the stars in Texas. That's right. Yeah. So was this? So on my, I have a Discord server that I, I have, most of my audience uh, interacts with me on, and I was uh, out last Friday, but there was a there was a, a couple of links that got posted from Skylius's Twitch that 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 there was a debate um, between you and Fraser. Was that during the Star Party, or was that a separate yes. event? That was the the Fermi yes. Paradox mm -hmm. uh, um, debate. It, we just decided to do that impromptu and just go with it. So we um, we got together in the uh, conference room, which was empty, which was the quietest place we could find. And we just did a Fermi Paradox debate. And um, that's uh, I'm actually going to post that on my Event Horizon channel, too, because I have the, I have decent audio of it I, that I took with a Zoom recorder. So that'll go up probably on tomorrow, um, on July 4th. So... Uh, but yeah, that was just a, something we cooked up on the spot to just do. And we debated the Fermi Paradox. Well, you we know, had super interesting. Oh. Yeah. I was going to say it's super interesting because I think that's what you're about to mention, Tony, is we just did a debate yeah. with uh, with Fraser on this podcast about that. But you had some really excellent points. So you believe there is life out there. Well, I think statistically. Um, all right. I have to break this into two things. If it's life, yes, I believe wholeheartedly that microbes are very common in the universe because there's no reason not to suspect that that's the case. Anything above a microbe, that's a lot harder. So I would say civilizations are very rare, but not unique. That's that's just my gut feeling on it. Um, but we can't know until we look and explore, of course. But I just think that the solution to the Fermi paradox is that civilizations are rare and they may not exist in the same galaxy with each other at the same time because there's a time factor. You know, they may have right. been in the past or in the future and destroyed themselves, whatever. So you can't really. I just I, that's my gut feeling. But I don't like the idea of us being unique. That's I don't like anything unique in the universe because that looks weird. Well, you're a science fiction author. And you wouldn't be much of a science fiction author if you believed we're alone in the universe, right? That that doesn't make for great stories. Well, you can make stories out of that. You can, can you? say, oh, sure. You could say, okay, the universe is a simulation. And in reality, it's humanity in the far future 
you know, simulating itself when it was biological. And for a story like that, you don't need aliens. Um, I always stick aliens in my book, though, <laughs> in my books. Uh-huh. <laughs> I always want one, at least one alien species in there. Yeah, but, they, um, they belong there. I don't have any doubt. I, like, I know there there are a lot of great points that Fraser makes about there not being life in the universe, but I still, it's just statistically, I mean, everything you throw at it, you can come back to that and just be like, yeah, but let me get out the 20-inch scope and show you how big this place is, you know, or, yeah, and that's one galaxy. That's one galaxy, which could be a race tomorrow and the universe wouldn't notice. You know, that's one galaxy. So it's just the scale. Hundreds of billions, hundreds of billions of chances, each contained in hundreds of billions of galaxies. Yeah. It just seems to me there's got to be somebody out there. Across billions of years. What appeals to your common sense doesn't necessarily uh, mean much because, as we've seen in many areas of science, what ends up actually being true is very counter to a common sense explanation, not the least of which is what goes on in quantum mechanics. So I don't I don't I think it's we got to be careful about this. Well, it just seems so right that there's got to be something surely uh that's never been very uh convincing to me i mean i've just i agree with you that there are uh like you know simple what we would call simple life or just basically increasingly more complicated chemistry that eventually turns into something that looks like life however we want to define it is probably quite common uh i see that being uh, able to start all kinds of places but the civilization thing i'm okay with us being the only one um i i don't see why that's so impossible and if if you give me the article or the argument that well it's just depends you know timing is it matters you know we're up we're up now but maybe 7 billion years ago it was some other civilization i mean that's fine that could maybe be but for all intents and purposes it's irrelevant it doesn't matter. I mean, it only in the academic argument that we aren't the only one, then I guess that would be satisfying. But what well, it might even be preferable that we would be the only one because, yeah, a civilization, another civilization could be nice, altruistic, mm-hmm. something like that. Or it could be a complete monster. It could be a machine civilization that sees any intelligent biology as a threat and it simply destroys anything it finds. Um, or say it's like, well, I'm going to be living till the far future and I'm a giant AI supercomputer that somebody built and I need to collect up all the resources. So I'm not going to let biology use any resources in this galaxy. It's all mine. So there are nightmare scenarios that you can think of where, yeah, you might see um, an alien civilization, but it might be thoroughly terrifying <laughs> to know that it's there and you're better off being ignorant of it. Or, you know, the other thing too is that People expect that, say SETI picked up a signal, um, people expect it's going to be like the movie Contact, but it's probably not going to be anything like that because it would be very difficult to decipher any kind of a signal from an alien civilization when you don't have a key to figure it out. In in reality, it's probably going to be radar. We see aliens and they're using radar. Well, what else do we know about them? Nothing. We just know that they're using radar. You know, but wouldn't it be, it would be patterns that are searched for, not really anything else, right? Just patterns. Patterns. Uh, yeah, you would look for patterns or what, what you really are hang on, hang for. on, hang on. There are patterns in randomness. So That's you true. don't, you, you don't, that there's all kinds of biases that you need to be careful of. I mean, just looking for a pattern isn't an answer either. Well, what you got to look for is signs of technology, which is what SETI does. So their 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 reasoning is is okay with a radio spectrum. What's a natural frequency 
to broadcast a signal at a contact signal. And they came up with 1420 megahertz, which is the uh, frequency at which neutral hydrogen emits uh, radio. Right, 21 so, centimeters. Yeah, exactly. And the idea there is that any alien scientist would know about that. Um, sorry about that. Um, the uh, so any alien scientist would know that of the you know fourteen twenty megahertz hydrogen line. So they they say okay, we'll just look there. And then what you look for more importantly is narrow band. Uh, nature in almost all cases, except for certain very special astrophysical phenomena, always transmits broadband. Technology transmits narrow band to save energy because you don't want to be broadcasting across multiple frequencies unless you, you know, you, you absolutely have to because it takes energy to do that. So they would probably be very targeted and very narrow band. And that is a sort of a technological marker. And that's why the wow signal was so interesting was because it was narrow band and at the hydrogen line. But it never repeated. And so, John, you run two channels on uh, YouTube. You run the one named mm -hmm. John Michael Godier, which is massive. Um, I think, I mean, at this point, you've got like 160,000 subscribers just listen, just listening to these or watching these videos on space, which is amazing. Mm -hmm. And then you have another one, Event Horizon. Why yes. did you, why did you um, divide them up? Why didn't you just put it all on one channel? It's very simple. One is just me which is my original channel where I do the monologues, uh, you know, scripted monologues on science topics. And the second is a partnership between me and two other people. Um, then it's a, an interview channel and that's a talk show. So essentially it's, you think of it as two different shows and the formats are sort of incompatible, but it's also easier when you're running businesses, which is what they actually really are. Um, you you have have to you have to split up how do you, how you divvy up the money and it's it's much simpler if you do it with two separate channels. Yep. And so let me ask you this because you cover everything in space science. I mean, when you watch your videos; it really reaches into every topic. Mm -hmm. What is the thing that keeps your interest the most? Is it the search for life? Is it you know these uh, exoplanets? Like, what is it that that you find fascinating? New discoveries. Um, no matter what. Um, for example, my most recent episode on Event Horizon was on the discovery of cold quasars, new class of quasars that, you know, are blue instead of red, essentially. So it's a different stage of the quasar. And it's that type of stuff, new discoveries, you know, something new that we know about the universe is really what keeps me going. And there's no shortage of material there. Obviously, every day something comes out. So that's what keeps me going is I, I is the constant collection of knowledge about the universe is something that I've done ever since I was a kid. First looked through a telescope, I think I was 10 years old, and saw Saturn. And ever since then, I've been hungry for information about the universe, including the search for life, but also astrophysical stuff. And um, it never stopped. And I'm glad to be able to do it as a career. To be honest, it's the best place for me. But you didn't always do that when we were, you know, you were actually interviewing me for um, mm -hmm. the show there. And I was learning a lot about you when we were doing it. But you told me uh, in that interview that you didn't get started with this until you were 37. Yes, I, I didn't release my first novel, which is what kicked all this off. In 2013, I was 37. Um, I had been an entrepreneur working with uh, Internet businesses before them um, since the 90s. I think I started in 1997. I think I started uh just sort of finding ways to make money on the internet, um, which I was reasonably good at. And then I got 
was like, ah, I need something else. So I had always wanted to write a science fiction novel. So I did. And that's what started this. And then I had to promote it, which is why I went on YouTube and so on. So it was the, the catalyst then was just the wanting to write the novel that changed because you would have never done a YouTube channel without first writing the novel. That's right. I wouldn't have. Um, I, uh, I had, I had some experience in radio way back and some experience in podcasting way back, very unsuccessful experience. Um, and I thought, well, what, what social media platform can I use to promote books? And, you know, some authors were using Facebook. I know David Brin has quite a Facebook following. That's, that's what he does. And, you know, different platforms. And I thought, well, I know how to talk, so I could use YouTube. And that's where I went. And to my surprise, it, got way bigger than I thought it would. Do you find that that is, has it been changing much recently for you? I mean, I've had a, my YouTube channel I've had since 2006 and I've noticed over those years that there's been quite a change on YouTube. And I guess one of the things I wanted to ask you about as a science communicator is one thing I've seemed to notice in my, in the comment section of my videos are, is an increasing frequency of distrust in the science mm -hmm. that's being presented, yeah. like whether it's, uh, you know, the cold quasars that you were just talking about, or whether I just did one on, uh, talking about, um, uh, you know, the, the NASA selection of the firefly mission to Titan. Uh, there is an incredible increase in my opinion, in my experience in just people distrusting everything you say about what, you know, whether Titan has an atmosphere even, or just the basic tenets of science. And there seems to be a real anger associated with it too. And I just wanted to get your your feedback on that. Do you think that's real? Do you think that's happening uh, on platforms like YouTube? Do you see an increase in distrust in science among the viewers? Yeah. Let me take that point by point. YouTube. Nobody likes change more than YouTube. It changes constantly. And sure. every, almost every few months, it's different all of a sudden. Um, and how about that Firefly mission? I'm pumped for that one. Oh, I know. Uh, <laughs> I was very excited this, about it. <laughs> this idea of a, a, a nuclear-powered drone flying around on Titan. I can't think of a cooler NASA mission in recent years than that. <laughs> Except for the Europa Clipper, which is also very cool. Yeah. But, uh, this yeah. is, this, you know, a, a quadcopter on Titan? Yeah, you got to do it. <laughs> actually, wouldn't it actually be an octocopter? Well, it's a, it's a it, no. It's what they're calling it is a dual quadcopter because a dual the, quadcopter. It's, it's eight bladed, but it's it's a the, there's two counter rotating blades at each corner, so I it's see. a yeah. double quadcopter. I guess. Well, I guess you could call it an octocopter. I guess. I think octocopter is way better. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I just it's say what uh, NASA what NASA's calling it is a dual quadcopter, but yeah. But what do they know? <laughs> you know? Yeah, what do they know? <laughs> 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 no, but I can't I can't think of a cooler mission to look forward to. It's going to take a while. It takes a while to get to Saturn, but I can't think of a cooler thing to have come out than that. Yeah, 2034 um, I think is when it gets to Titan. So Yeah. Gotta, and now wait. and now to your last question, the woo. Um all right. The thing is is that people love to be contrarian. And contrarians tend to be very vocal as as you see on YouTube in comment sections. Um about a certain percentage of those people are actually believe this stuff, but a larger percentage are just trolling for, um, you know, they're just trolling for <laughs> reactions from people, attention, I guess. Now, the people that actually do believe it are victims of people that make this stuff up on monetized YouTube channels or they write books and try to sell them. They make the stuff up fundamentally. 
Not always, but fundamentally they do. And they're just basically engaging in in a uh, BS business, just like the carnival barkers of, of old, you know, playing things up or the snake oil salesmen selling, you know, cure-alls. There's always going to be a certain amount of people that fall for it. But in reality, it's just something they're making up. Now, there are just a few people that that write about this stuff or speak about it, and they're just crazy. And other people follow them for whatever reason. But fundamentally, it's a it's a grift. And um, it's time that it ends because look at the damage that it does. I get kids questioning the moon landing, the Apollo moon landings. And no, the Apollo moon landings and the footage from that should be used for education and to energize kids into going into science and tech. It should not be something that's that's marred by this bizarre conspiracy theory that it never happened, despite the fact that there's tons of third party evidence for it. Um, the Soviet Union proudly proclaimed that they tracked Apollo to and from the moon and um, they were the mortal enemy of the United States and they would have had every motive to say that didn't happen. They never did. They said, oh, it happened. And we tracked it. We spied it. We had it. The whole thing infiltrated. So it just seems silly to me that this these, these silly conspiracy theories get so much credence. Um, as a result, I think it's a good a good idea for YouTubers within science to just debunk the stuff, you know, um, mm. and get it out there that this is being made up. And in the in the case of the, the Apollo Moon thing, that was one author back in the seventies, you know, selling a, a you know a book that started all of that. And had he not done that, it wouldn't be out there. Nobody would even question it. Well, correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe that in part of the lore, I remember with Phil Plate back in the day when he started the Bad Astronomy blog, it was started primarily as an anti-bad bad astronomy map. You know, he would he would talk against anything that was bad astronomy, and one of those things was a was the moon hoax. And so he started his career debunking lots of this stuff early on, and then of course. Right his moniker stuck, but he ended up doing a lot more science communicating than just oh, that. Oh, sure. Yeah. But I, I, you know, I, I guess I got to say, I, I, I get that there's trolls and I get that there's isolated trolls, but I was talking with Steven Swancote out in New York when we were talking, he went to part of, he's making a documentary on amateur astronomy. And one of the things he did is he went and filmed a, uh, some of his footage at a flat earth convention. And, you know, th these, these are, if there's ever a, uh, uh, a non or a distrustful of sci of the mainstream science group. It's the flat earth people. And we were talking about uh, what the, you know, why do they believe this stuff? And I think it's bigger than just wanting to be a contrarian. I think that once you start listening to people who are talking about whether the moon landing happened or not, or whether or not the earth is round and, and some of the, and some of the messages connecting to an uneducated or a person with not very much experience in science, it seems to be connecting. It seems to make sense to a certain person and they start to follow that person and listen to them. Then a community develops. And echo chamber. It's an echo chamber. Yes, but it's more than that. It's where these people feel they like they belong. Like when they say things, they are listened to and understood and when you get a group like that, when you get a community of people like that, you're now emotionally invested in these ideas. And, and so you're not going to be convincing these people of anything well, other it becomes, than what at, they, they believe. At that point, it becomes a religion. 
when exactly. when okay yeah. all right we could call it that but it's a it's an emotional attachment to these ideas that any kind of rational argument is not going to break uh you can go into that and give the most pristine logical argument uh about why the earth is round or how we went to the moon and it's just not going to be listened to because they don't they haven't they have an investment in this what happens if they suddenly change they go to you and they say yes you make perfect sense now what? Their community ostracizes them, and they no longer belong. Right. And so they are not just going to give up for no other reason than they don't want to give up their acceptance. And I think yeah. that's powerful. And I think yeah, it's— Yeah, you're, you're asking too much at that point. You're not asking them to yes. give up an idea. You're asking them to give up their community. They've become right? identified with this, and they right. are not going to let it go. And we are—these communities are getting huge— they're getting enormous. I mean, well, and I, these... I read your comments on your channel, Tony, and uh, same on yours, John. I mean, both of you deal with this. And I, I have to say, I think you handle it beautifully, but you get, um, I mean, you guys get hate. <laughs> you know, yeah. there's no other way to say it. You guys get hate about putting this stuff out there. You're part of, you're the enemy. Oh, I get death threats. <laughs> uh, Do you really? Death threats? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, but anybody that's got a big YouTube channel with an active, engaged audience is going to get crazies. Yeah, there's just no way around that. But um, but the thing is, is that there's different grades of this type of stuff, because if you look at like the flat earthers, to shut them down, you just confound them with as simple a sentence as you can. Drive south and look at the stars on the horizon. That's they can't. They can't quite get past that type of an argument where, you know, yeah, you can prove to yourself without a scientist that the earth is round. You don't even need a scientist. Just drive south and look at the night sky. Um, I mean, you got to drive a lot, but still. Um, or travel to South America and look at the night sky. You, you know, really don't have to drive that much, though. I mean, especially, you know, because we have to polar align. So you have to sure. you have to adjust your mount just driving 30, 40 minutes north or south, you know. Right. So you simply ask them to do an experiment like that. Um, yeah. Now, it gets much harder with people like the moon landing hoax people because that's a little bit more involved. But again, there are things you can say that they can't refute. Um, for example, firing lasers up at the, you know, the uh, reflectors that are on the moon to sound the difference between, you know, the distance between the Earth and the moon that the Apollo astronauts set up. There are many things there. And the fact that you know, they, they'll, they'll yell CGI without realizing it didn't really exist in 1969. So if you point things like that out, that there there was no CGI then, it can't be CGI. So they'll, you know, you'll, you'll break the ice a little bit. But the really insidious one are the pseudoscientific ones that get close to science, like the electric universe theory. Oh, That's yes. where it gets oh, yes. really bad because then you have to fight with them about plasma and, you know, currents and all this, you know, BS that they, they say, you have to provide science's, you know, retort to it. And I usually do this by using chemistry instead of astrophysics, because that theory, quote unquote theory, <laughs> um, that theory relies on astrophysics. But if you start asking, well, what happens if we apply that same principle in chemistry? You know, because things like gravity exists in chemistry, too, you know, so... Mm -hmm it falls apart and then then things that we do industrially with chemistry fall apart and it gets to the point that you know if the electric universe is true then the tire on your car can't exist as it does you so know what so is you have to make what it. is the electric universe theory i don't i don't know about this 
It's a conference that these guys put on and charge an enormous amount of money to get into. And then they made up a bunch of shtick uh, all around Emmanuel Velikovsky's ideas from the 60s, which were just, a, you know, something he made up to sell books. And um, it, it's all based around that. And it's everybody has a different theory. And as one of the founders of it, it says it's it's. They, they have no peer, view, peer review because they have no peers because each one has a different theory. And they're all trying to make money off it. And there's gullible people that buy into it. And it becomes a religion, essentially, um, that they will not relent on. So you simply ask them questions. Yeah, I don't know what – I actually don't know what it is because I don't understand it. But I will tell you that that, that group in particular is uh, uniquely belligerent in, in, yeah. in, the, comment, in the comment section of uh, my videos anyway. Oh, and, me too. Uh, and I, I, you know, the, well, but, but back to the broader question of a distrust in science, I think I'm worried about this, actually. And I want to get your thoughts on it, because I see this growing among, as you mentioned, in school children who probably aren't probably aren't getting much of a science education in their schools to begin with, or at least not as, as good as the one I had growing up. And I wonder if you think as a, as a general rule. That the general public forget the the extrema, the like the the flat Earth and moon hoaxers, but just the general public. Do you think that there is a lack of trust in science these days? I think so, but I think I think that's twofold. Um, I think it's uh, number one. It's just misinformation. You know, people getting bad information, and they go into the echo chambers and only listen to what you know fits their worldview, and they just get lost. The other part of it is, I think, science and technology is I think viscerally scary to some people because it's getting so advanced and they're like, well, I hear about these things like artificial intelligence being able to wipe us all out eventually. And we're moving towards that. And, you know, so maybe there's a reactionary aspect to this um, or, or, or just something that they don't understand it. Therefore they fear it. I don't understand the science stuff. So I fear it, you know, things like yeah. that. I think that those factors are playing in, but we're still better off than we used to be. You know, um, 300 years ago, <laughs> the world was illiterate and science was only just really getting going. So um, we're still better off than that. But now it's it's up to us as YouTubers and influencers to influence people the other way towards reality. Yeah. Okay. That's good. I, I guess when I, when I think about the general distrust out there, it starts to, I, I believe it, it's a, it's been a growing phenomenon since about the 1950s when, when, when the atomic bomb first became real part of you know the culture. I think that was one of the first times where science could do something that was actually extremely scary and wipe us all out. And I believe that with that coupled with a lot of other political events that have happened since then, I, I just feel like that there is a reason, there's a sense that people think that because science can do something, it will do something. And I, I try to send the message out that it's not okay just because science has discovered something that we should do something. There's a lot of philosophical arguments to be made, for example, uh, about, you know, gene editing or, or, uh, abortion even, you know, just because we can do something, should science do it? I think that's a conversation that the general public would appreciate, uh, because I don't think there is being, I don't think there's a sense that that's happening. And so I like to get input from, communicators like you who've got a large audience to get your sense of where you think the audience is in this in this distrust level my feeling is that it's growing but you know it could just be because i'm also in a bubble i think that for the most part it's harmless does it really matter if somebody living in a 
you know, a trailer park somewhere believes that the earth is flat. That's, Absol- no, yeah. not, no, not that, but it absolutely matters about vaccines. <laughs> that's so, right. That's, so, that's where I was going. The anti-vaxxers, oh, okay. the anti-vaccine movement is dangerous right. because then you're okay. getting kids that are not getting vaccinated. And this puts the rest of the world at risk in, in the event some disease that would be otherwise conquerable comes back because somebody, some group decided not to uh, get vaccines. Um so that's where it gets dangerous is the anti-vaxxers and things like that. But again, they're they're you know they're also religious groups that refuse medical treatment and always have. So you know this is this is not a new thing, but it's getting bigger than it really needs to be and getting dangerous. Do you have a telescope? Me? Yes. Mm-hmm. What do you I have? I do. Kind of I have. I have. Well, I have numerous telescopes, but my old trusty is a venerable old late 1980s black tube Celestron C8 on a Byers Worm Gear Drive. Hey, I, the Byers Worm Gear Drive was the bomb back then. That was that was the drive that had very little backlash. It was machined. Mm-hmm. You you paid extra for that, yeah. and uh, yeah, I know just the telescope. The yes, and it's still that Byers Worm Gear Drive, despite being under heavy use since the 90s when I got it. Uh, which I got it secondhand. It's still going strong. Yeah, you could buy just I don't you can't anymore. I don't think, but you could buy just the, the uh, worm gear drives themselves, the worm gears themselves, and put them on all kinds of German uh, German equatorials and all kinds of other things. So oh yeah, well, that it's, that it's, does bring back memory. So you still have that. I does still that, have it. Does that have the star bright like, coatings on it and everything? Yes, it does. It's got the star bright <laughs> coatings, and oh, I, I, I even. I, I have my my old Telrad still works and it's stuck on the side of it and yeah I um I've been doing this like this since the nineties and I'm not changing. What was that though? Was that a eighty eight ish eighty eighty eight ish? I think I think mine is eighty nine. I think okay. I was able to track it down, uh, but I didn't get it until I in nineteen eighty nine. It was fourteen and you know wrestling around with a Dobsonian, which was actually one of the earlier Dobsonians. John Dobson was still alive and. Um, I yeah, built it with John his Dobson. help. Yeah, I did. And wow. uh, yeah, so I have a very early Dobsonian. But um, I was wrestling that around. But the uh, the C8 I bought after I was, you know, 20 years old and I bought it secondhand. And because it was at that time, that was like the Gibson Les Paul of telescopes. It was. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so the and, way I see this going down is you're like you're standing there with John Dobson, like making a telescope. And then you're just like, John, can I name this after you? <laughs> it didn't. It didn't quite go that way. Actually, most of the course, most of the correspondence, except for one one time, was through mail, and he sent okay. me plans essentially. And um, nice. I happen to have a guru of telescope mirror grinding here in this town that I live, and live in. And um, he made the mirror, and I was able to build the tube, and you know, using basically what you would use for pouring concrete. That's the tube. Um, oh yeah. And then building it, you know, using, you know, like little Teflon on the, you know, the, the wheels and the, everything else that, that went, went into it. For the clutches um, and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. But the reason that he helped me was I, what I, what I wanted to do was drag it outside on street corners and show people the stars. <laughs> yeah. And that's what I did. <laughs> Although I also went to schools and, you know, uh, astronomical star parties and things like that. So you were doing side, uh, sidewalk astronomy way back. Yes. Uh-huh. Yep. Right when that movement was really being organized by Dobson. Yeah. Which is why he invented that telescope. He wanted to do what, well, what do you do, Dustin? He wanted to make astronomy accessible to everyone. And um, he was sort of the pioneer in that. And I'm glad definitely. that I, I definitely am glad that 14-year-old me had that experience of, of corresponding with him because he's long gone now. But 
Right. He wasn't he wasn't young then. <laughs> the best thing about a Dobsonian is one look at it and you know how it works. You don't yeah, gotta exactly. figure anything out. You can just you can just start using it because it's just right there. And uh, I just want to getting back to the C8 for just a minute. I just want to say that I have a friend in Colorado. The only telescope that I want, I think is better than those old classic C8s like the one you have is the one my friend has a, uh, a C8 built in 1977, had the dual, uh, you know, the sync motors in it. And it's got the sand cast fork arms on it. And I really want that because it's like that was when one of the first Celestrons that had come out didn't even have I don't even think it had coatings on it on the well, I had some kind of coatings on the Schmidt cast or the corrector plate, but I don't remember what they were. But I want that. I say he he goes, should I get rid of this scope? And I'm saying, yes, you should get rid of it and give it to me. <laughs> I will buy well, that scope from you. <laughs> well, one thing, one thing I, I've seen some of the more modern um, eight inch telescopes and a lot of them have only one fork one side of the fork that's right and it just seems to me to be inherently unstable compared to the the metal monster that i deal with that is rock solid it's like a piece of concrete you know um and if you want to do astrophotography or you know stick a video camera in there or something like that a rock solid mount fork mount is good stuff but they're not made like that much anymore unless you want to spend a lot more money well, I'm sure Dustin has a lot to say about this, but I think the the the, the materials of today's telescopes are probably making these one arm uh, fork drives uh, pretty pretty stable, aren't they, Dustin? Yeah, things are getting much much lighter, much faster, and the accuracy is just it's impossibly good anymore. I mean, even like Plane Wave has a single arm fork mount that is direct drive. That um, this thing can can move like sixty degrees a second. And go from satellite to satellite, tracking at different speeds and just be dead on in less than a second moving across the sky. You know, it's just they've gotten so good. And then, you know, harmonic drive has become a thing. So these mounts can be incredibly light, carry like five times their own weight and capacity for imaging. So I have an 11 pound mount that can carry a 50 pound payload for imaging. So it's just getting, you know, it's getting to the point where you can just backpack. (laughs) You can just backpack out you know, into a dark site and set it all up out of your camera bag. You know, yeah, that's it's, it's really pretty impressive. Yeah. I mean, that's true. I do have to, I do have to schlep half a ton of metal, you know, but <laughs> exaggerating <laughs> of course. Um, but I'm sort of, I should start a YouTube channel, the Amish amateur astronomer with me and my, my telescope. That's, 30 years old <laughs> that, I, re- about that I refuse those, to give up. It's like my horse and buggy. <laughs> there, there's yeah. something about those, man, that you just can't like, you can't beat it though. I've got two really old. So I have exactly the telescope you're talking about sitting here next to me, but then just through the window of the podcast studio here, I have a, a telescope that when you walk into OPT, it's one of the first ones you see. And it just is this old, it, it looks Chrome, but it's from 1947 and it's on an EQ drive and um, it still works, but it was handmade the year that OPT started. So, I mean, this is before Alaska and Hawaii were even states, you know? <laughs> so we have a, a 48 star flag in here next to it. And it's just, this is when OPT started, but this thing still works. And uh, it's just so cool to see something that's 73 years old. Here in St. Louis, we ha- at Washington University, we have, a, I think, 1890s era um, Alvin Clark refractor. And it's still used for viewing. Um, I mean, it's not a dark sky location by any means, but they do, or at least they did have public star parties. I don't know if they still do or not using this this um, 
I don't know, 130 year old uh, refractor with really amazing optics. Actually, Alvin Clark was legendary for that. And yeah, that, that telescope's still in service. Yeah, he made a lot of those. There's one of the University of Denver at Chamberlain Observatory, too, that I think is 20-inch. And uh, it's it's stunning. It's still there doing star parties, but, yeah, it's in the middle of Denver. Uh, but it's, yeah, I know what you mean. And I, I don't know. There's just something about these old Celestrons we were talking about. You know, they just, I don't know. They, maybe it's because I grew up with them. I don't know. But I just think that yeah, the fact too. that they're still yeah. around, and this should be a me- message to people today buying telescopes, mm-hmm. if you buy the right one, you're going to, you're going to keep this thing. I mean, I still have my uh, Edmund AstroScan 2001 that I bought in 1984 with, for Halley's Comet. I'm never letting that go. And it still works Did, great. The red AstroScan. Yeah, I have that. I remember it. I remember <laughs> yeah. it. Yeah, I still take it out. I put it on the car hood and look at Jupiter. I did it just the other night, looked at Jupiter, because my wife was like, what is that bright thing over there? And I'm like, is it in the south? And she goes, yeah. I said, well, that's, that's Jupiter. So let's go look. So we did. <laughs> I, I haven't looked through it, but I think my original 30 millimeter Tasco that I got in the 80s, which was my first telescope, pretty sure there's no reason why it wouldn't still work. Um, yeah, with the right eyepieces. Yeah. It didn't even have eyepieces. It had a fixed one. It was part of a set where you got a microscope and a telescope. And it's just a little tiny telescope, 30 millimeters. And uh-huh. um, the thing is, it was enough for me to see Saturn and Saturn's rings. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and actually, yeah. I'm going to drag that out. I'm going to find that, drag it out of the closet and look at Saturn again for the first time since 1980 something. Yeah, they don't wear out. They don't, they don't. You know. No, the optics are good. I mean, think about it. The optics were so good in the 80s that you can pull it out of the closet now and it's still going to show you Saturn. Think about the optics that are on these scopes now. I mean, you buy a scope oh, today yeah. and you're going to yeah. be sharing that with so many generations of your family. It's, it's really a cool thing to think about because, I mean, space is, it connects people. Yeah, back in the day, it was hard to get good optics. Um, and even that Tasco, I mean, that thing's like Galileo's level of optics. It was just mass produced and yeah. they didn't wasn't have much rap. going on. Yeah. And it may even be it may even be a plastic lens for all I know. But now the optics that you can get, I mean, out of the box, you know, consumer grade telescope can probably compete with what Celestron was doing back in the 80s um, or get close to it anyway. The optics on my CA is pretty good, but um, yeah, you don't have to spend a lot of money anymore for no. sure. I mean, we use a little $50 telescope to show people just to bring out to let kids use to see Saturn and the moon and everything. And it blows people away. I mean, it's $50. And you think about optics for $50, that would have been impossible back then. Yeah, for anything that would actually show you anything. Um, but now it's readily available um, yep. through OPT. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. that's yeah. true. And, and Dustin, is the the big, I guess the big difference between these optics back in the eighties and now isn't the big, uh, advances. Haven't they been in, in, uh, I would think coatings or something like that, or is it, or is it glass material or are they, are they using different materials both, for glasses? Both. So everything's a lot more thermally stable now, a lot more. And they're, they're just trying new things. And there's been a ton of innovation over the last three or four years, you know, with sandwich mirrors where it makes the mirror lighter and then it gets air in between. So you've got more surface area to cool the mirror down faster. You know, then you can eliminate fans. You don't have vibration, all this stuff. So it's just one step leads to, you know, 10,000 improvements. But uh, the coatings, you know, starting with a company called Teleview, just got so oh, good tele- on on refractors and then, yeah. you know Celestron and Mead both did such a great job of innovating on the uh, the coatings with reflectors and then it just became less and less and less expensive to the point where now you know this is 
this is not the hobby it used to be where you had to think, okay, if I mortgage my house, I can look at the stars one night, you know, now it's just like, oh yeah, for a couple hundred bucks, I can have this tool to explore the universe with. And it's just, it's really gotten accessible for people. So all thanks to the innovation of, of many of these companies. That's interesting what you said about thermal stability, because if you take a C8 like this, an old one out, you got to wait an hour to, yep. for it to thermally, you know, get yeah. where it needs to be. What's the, what are the times now for an eight inch telescope like that? You Say know, a Dobsonian with an open tube or something is, like that. This is how good it's gotten. You know, that big 17 I have out in my observatory. Uh-huh. My cooldown is four minutes. <laughs> four minutes. On my That's 17. That's amazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. On a so 17 I inch. I open my roof usually if, I mean, if I give it 10 minutes, I'm perfect all night, you know, and that's with temperature swings out in the desert can be 40 yeah. degrees. So yeah, I mean, I, I never even consider it anymore, but you know, they're making these quartz mirrors and things. And, and then, you know, some of the other ones, like I said, they have air getting in between the mirror. Um, it just keeps it on ambient temperature all the time. And, uh, it's really good. You know, with refractors, it's a closed system. So you've got an element in the front, you've got an element in the back, and then air cannot get in between. So they they really have um, done a good job of trying to uh, make refractors to where they don't have so much fluctuation, but there always will be some. So now they have temperature compensating focusers where it eliminates the problem altogether anyway, because you know as the tube flexes, contracts, it um, the focuser compensates for it in you know real time. Amazing. You do make a good point. I mean, a lot of these old scopes, they have a lot of thermal mass. And so they do they, the the sand, the iron sand cast mounting that I was talking about. That's going to yeah, it's going to take a while. It's going to radiate especially for a bit. Especially <laughs> the ones, especially the ones you guys are talking about, because those yeah. are closed tubes, right? I mean, you've got a corrector plate in the front, the yeah. mirror in the back, and then you've got your eyepiece sealing off the whole thing. So that air inside is is stuck inside of this thing that's built like a tank. <laughs> you know, So it's it takes a while to cool down. Well, uh, so, so John, let me just ask you, we're getting, running a little bit out of time. I want to ask about where, what are you excited about going forward with your, with your, with your writing and your businesses with on your YouTube channels? What are, what are you looking forward to? What's in, what's in store for you? I am looking forward to the next thing that excites me enough to where I, I'm driven to make a video about it, um, which currently, <laughs> currently is the Titan probe. Um, I, I saw that and I was like, oh yeah, this is yeah. why I do this. Um, so that's, that's really what it is. It's like, it's like waking up every morning and saying, what happened? You know, what, what can I talk about? And, you know, um, are, are you several, writing any several, books? Do you have any books? In the, in the, I am. Yeah. I'm writing a book. I do not have a title for it yet, but, um, but I can tell you how it begins. Um, I, because I came up with it at, uh, <laughs> at, at the all-stars party. It begins with a man on Mars making cave painting in a lava tube, um, just like a early man painting antelope on the walls of caves. This guy's doing it, you know, on Mars. And it seems like this primitive thing, you know, grinding up the red ochre of Mars and painting it on a wall. And then he puts his helmet back on and goes back into a space colony. So he just wanted to be the first person to do a, a human cave painting on Mars. <laughs> just to mess up the archaeologists. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. We were sitting there. We were sitting there drinking. Uh, must have been scotch together, John. And then scotch, you, you yeah. said that. Yeah. You said that out loud. You know, we were drinking Lafroy. We were drinking the good stuff, man. And then <laughs> oh, Dustin, and, Dustin, nobody, if you're around, we're drinking good stuff. <laughs> yeah. 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 And um, John, John looks at me. He says that. He says, 
spaceman paints cave painting on Mars. And he said, I'll be right back. He said, I'm yes. going to write this down. <laughs> yes. And that that's actually the first chapter uh, now. And I'm going to merge it with another story that I was working on. Um, so I got a novel going here. So. <laughs> John, we're gonna um, we're gonna have a lot of fun here getting you on some oh, of the remote yeah. observatories and and trying Can't wait. to. Uh, yeah, I love what you're doing. Your videos are awesome, and yeah, you're, you're spreading the right message. Likewise, man, I I love it that you're bringing astronomy to everyone um, through several different programs. Um, you know, telescopes in high schools and uh, space telescopes accessible to the public. I just amazed me your the talk you gave at uh, at the uh, the uh, resort. Well, thank you. Yeah. And, and you and people like you, you know, are really making this possible because it's, it's getting people interested in space and it's that first step in making it accessible, you know, so very much appreciate what you're doing and you're doing a phenomenal job. Love your videos. So thank you so much. And thank you for joining us here today. Yeah, no problem. Um, you know, I think about it. We're all doing our little part to popularize science, but, you know, it would really be nice to be able to launch a Tesla into space. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <Now> that's popular. <laughs> yep. That's popularization. Although myself, I'd, I'd launch a LeBaron um, with a Robert Goulet playing on the, yeah. <laughs> a LeBaron? Like a Chrysler yeah. LeBaron? Oh, a LeBaron. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> 85 LeBaron with the, with the wood grain panels. That's, that's what I want to launch into space. There's your um, next book right there. Yeah. yeah. But thanks, uh, gentlemen. It was a, it right. was it was a blast. All right. Well, thank you for joining us. I already got. Oh, that was a nice uh, got a nice thunderstorm going on here. Oh, uh, yeah. Our guest today was uh, John Michael Godier. He's a science communicator, science fiction author, amateur astronomer. Uh, check him out on YouTube if you don't already know. Which uh, he's got amazing videos that he makes uh, on on two different channels, Event Horizon and his personal channel, uh, John Michael Godier. So thank you for joining us, John. And uh, I want to thank all of you guys for listening. And on behalf of Dustin Gibson, keep looking up. Space Junk is produced by Deep Astronomy and sponsored by OPT Telescopes in Carlsbad, California. Please visit our website at spacejunkpodcast.com. Also, please send any questions and comments or ideas for new episodes to spacejunk at deepastronomy.com. <laughs>